0: Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro and Strength and Speed owner, Evan Preparis. We've got a Q&A episode lined up for you. So I posted ans- some questions on my Facebook page and a bunch of people asked questions. So we're going to get to them right after a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Yoked. Yoked is a nutrition product that the clinical trials show three times the muscle growth. So it's actually fertilized egg yolk that's been powdered down and made safe to eat actually tastes really good, and it's designed to be paired with protein, so it's not kind of a standalone product. You're supposed to you know, eat a chicken breast with it or drink a protein shake with it. Um, you can drink it straight. You can pour it in your, into your protein shake. Tastes really good. Check them out. Tell them Strength and Speed sent you and use code STRENGTH20 for 20% off every order from www.yolk.com. I know Amy Padgett uses it, so if anyone wants some another opinion, you can go hit her up. Alright, let's get to the questions. So we've got a bunch from strength and speed athlete William Shell, and he's got some really good ones. But I'm going to do the other people's first and then we'll see how many of Will's questions we get through. So starting off with Seth Townsend, one of the KCOCR guys. Have you ran in Salomon Speedcross shoes? If so, how would you rate their grip versus VJ shoes? And then he asked a follow up question. So I have not run in Salomon Speedcross shoes. Solomon's, the foot mold they use, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, the foot mold they use doesn't fit my feet well. So, whenever I try on Solomon's, they give me hot spots or I'll get a blister. So, I just don't buy them, period. VJ's, on the other hand, fit my foot pretty well. The extremes are a little bit narrow for me, so I would not wear the extremes for Ultra, for me personally. Uh, they're just a little bit tight on my feet. And when I run extended distance, we're talking 10 plus miles, I might get some hot spots there. But the Max, M-A-X-X, which I just got, took them out of the box, ran, I think, 13 miles on my first run of them, and they're great. So I really enjoy those, uh, the VJ shoes there. But, you know, I would not recommend Solomon only because, again, the shape of my foot. So, you know, when you're shopping for shoes, you want to find something where their foot mold that they're using is similar to yours. And it's hard to know ahead of time. You kind of get it through trial and error. And if you've, if you're wearing shoes and you're getting blisters, you know the first thing I would do, um, if you know if you've been running for a while, is find a different shoe brand, right? Like find one that fits your foot better, that their mold fits your foot better, and uh, that should reduce the amount of blisters you get. In addition to doing things like just toughening your feet, right? Like the more you run, the more calloused in the right places your feet are going to get, and the less blisters you should have. Seth also wanted to know, what is the best water-draining shoe you've used? I don't really have a preference on best water-draining shoe. You know, the ones with holes in the side, where the water is allowed to drain out the side, you know, that works, but also, even if it doesn't have any holes, I feel like when I step, the pressure from my foot coming down makes the water squirt out like the tops or through the laces area. So I don't really have any preference on that, you know, no shoe specifically comes to mind. The one thing I'll say is when I'm shopping for OCR shoes, I try not to find one with a big insole because I feel like when you have a really thick insole that can be put in the shoe and then taken out, I feel like that thing just absorbs water and becomes like a big sponge on the bottom of your foot. You know, so the a lot of the shoes I race in or use for you know training where I'm going in and out of water, the they don't have any insoles. Like the insole is part of the bed of the shoe. All right, hopefully that provide a decent enough answer for Seth. Alright, we're going to move on to Michael Giles' question, he said, what's your ideal pre-race breakfast? He always seems to go heavy on that. You know, My breakfast is going to change depending on what type of race I'm doing, so if I'm doing something like World's Toughest Mudder or Toughest Mudder, I'll eat a little bit heavier and a little more food because I'm going to be going an extended period, i.e. all day or 12 hours without food. You know, as we get down to shorter distances through continuum and then down to something like if I was racing Conquer the Gauntlet four miles all out and I wasn't doing continuum, I would go lighter on the pre race breakfast. So, usually, what that looks like since I'm traveling, we'll start at the shorter end, is I usually buy something like the pre made Kodiak Cakes oatmeal or the uh, Kodiak Cakes muffin type thing, where it's got a little bit of protein, it's got a little bit of fat, and it's got a little bit of carbs, kind of a a little bit of everything to sit in your stomach before the race yeah I know some people skip breakfast but I don't think it's a good idea because you know let's say you ate dinner at let's say you had a late dinner you had like 7 p.m. dinner and then you go to bed and then you wake up you drive to the race venue you warm up and you know at that point you're approaching the starting line and you haven't eaten anything for 12 hours so I think that's starting you off on a deficit I know when I don't eat for 12 hours I'm generally feeling a little bit more lethargic so I think putting something in your stomach a couple hours before the race that morning can top off those glycogen levels and uh, make you feel a little more satiated walking up to the start line. You know, then right before the race, about 15 minutes before the start line, I usually have our Hammer nutrition gel. Uh, Maybe it's got some caffeine on it. Maybe it doesn't. Again, depending on the length of the race. Actually, the shorter race, I would go with a caffeinated gel. The longer races, I would not go with a caffeinated gel. And the reason is because most people start out too too fast when they run ultra, and I don't need to have caffeine at the start because that's just going to make me start out even faster. So that's generally not a good idea. You know, if we're talking toughest mutter, which starts at 8 p.m., my schedule changes a little bit. So for toughest mutter, you know, I'll go to sleep Friday night at a relatively normal time, wake up in the morning, go eat a large breakfast, so something like go to IHOP and get French toast and eggs and you know maybe a decaf kind of a little sugary type coffee. that's to kind of fill me up, make me feel full. And then we usually head back to the hotel room and I actually go back to sleep for a couple hours. Which is a little bit hard but Hammer Nutrition makes something called REM caps, it's a melatonin pills essentially. And I take one of those when I get back to the hotel room, lay down, usually listen to an audio book or something and just close my eyes and relax and I'll fall asleep you know maybe not for another I won't sleep for six hours but you know I'll, I'll sleep for two to four and then just relax and rest and you know kinda let your mind just relax so you can show up to the race well rested. So essentially before a Toughest motor, I almost simulate another night of sleep but in the middle of the day so when I show up to the start line of Toughest motor, I'm already well rested and I never get sleepy during those overnight races the only races I've ever been sleepy during have been due to time zone shifts. So when I, when I raced in England, when I raced in uh, Australia, and when I raced in Las Vegas after flying back from Lebanon. So those are the only three races, the ultra OCRs, that I've ever been sleepy in. Which is another reason I don't take caffeine before the race. Because I want the caffeine to hit me in the middle of the race when I'm feeling tired or just... You know, whether that be sleepy tired or just my body is physically tired. And it gives me a little bit more of a boost and allows me to push a little bit harder when I'm uh, feeling a little bit run down. So, yeah, those Kodiak cake type muffins or oatmeal is usually my go-to. You know, if for some reason I forgot to bring one of those, you know, maybe I'll hit up Starbucks and get an oatmeal and a breakfast sandwich and usually eat. I'll usually eat the oatmeal and about maybe a bite or two of the breakfast sandwich just so I have, again... A little bit of fat, a little bit of protein in there, but you know the the carbs. You want some a little bit of carbs sitting in your stomach. And the one thing I forgot to mention about the gels beforehand is there's been a study where they were you know they're testing a bunch of runners on a treadmill, and they allowed some of them to put some sugar solution, basically like Gatorade, in their mouth and swish it around and then spit it out. So essentially, very little of it actually gets into their body, uh, but it hits the receptors in their mouth and lets their body know there are more carbs coming. And what that does is fool the body and allows it to use more energy because it thinks its it's gonna get more energy you know, in a couple of minutes. So basically you're doing the same thing before a race. And I I mean, I would just eat the gel, but if for some reason you you don't want the gel or you don't want, your stomach already feels nauseous or whatever, then you can just kind of swish it around and spit it out. You know, that last minute bit of carbs will raise your blood sugar and allow you to access that while you're actually running during the race all right we're going to jump down to tony wade's question Uh, i believe from florida has come out to a couple of conquer the gauntlet continuums gave me a gave me a run for my money a couple times he said what is your recommended recovery after an endurance event i have my first 24-hour ocr next month with a five-mile ocr the following week i in parentheses i threw in hunters ocr stars in there just to punish myself as well and if those of you who are not tracking, OCR Stars is Hunter McIntyre has a virtual OCR functional fitness type event uh, that you can sign up for. It's relatively cheap and it's got some pretty good cash prizes. Or you know if you just want to see how you're stacking up against some of the top OCR athletes in a more of a functional fitness type setting, you can and you can check that out. I believe it's also an OCR World Championship qualifier, which I think is the only virtual OCR World Championship qualifier. So he asked, what would your recovery week look like leading into the five miler? So, first of all, my recommendation is don't do a five mile OCR a week after a 24 hour OCR. And I know that's hypocritical of me because I do stuff like that all the time. But, you know, if you're going to do it, you know, maybe you want, you really want to do the five mile OCR just because it's fun, then, you know, go for it. I just hope the five mile is not a like an A race, a priority race for you. You know, even if you're doing the 24-hour OCR and you're not going all out, uh, like you're not trying to win or really push your limits, that's still going to be a substantial uh, toll on your body. Um, that you, Bottom line is you, you won't recover within a week. It's, it's just not going to happen. However, you know, guys like Ryan Atkins or I, I, I can't remember if he's done it, but I know... Um, Alison Tai did a toughest mutter, or so I think she did. Maybe it was a 24-hour race, and then she won a short course uh, the week after. It was a 10-mile tough mutter. I know. I personally have done a five-hour, six-hour Warrior Rush race, and I won Conquer the Goal with the following week. You know, so it can be done on the shorter stuff. The 24-hour OCRs, again, it's just a really substantial toll on your body. All right, let me let me actually start answering the question now. So my recovery week. If I was doing a 24-hour OCR followed by a 5-miler the following week, for f- it's rest and sleep and eat healthy. So you're definitely not going to gain any fitness. Um, I would not work out pretty much at all between those two races. The 24-hour OCR is going to mess with your sleep cycle. So you're going to want to try to get back onto a normal sleep cycle as soon as possible by by taking naps or whatever you need to do to get back into that sleep cycle. And again, this is where I think REM caps is a great product that comes in handy. Ideally, you have something like Rapid Reboot. So the pants that compress by zones that helps you circulate your blood. And that allows you to give, you know, flush your blood around, clear the waste products without av- actually having to like get on a bike and do some slow cycling. So if you have Rapid Reboot or you have access to Rapid Reboot, I would do those every day uh, between Sunday and the following Saturday leading into the event. If you don't have something like that, I would do you know, an ice bath on Sunday or Monday, try to re- reduce some of that swelling. Then maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, do some light cycling. Depending how I was feeling, if I felt like I was recovering really well, you know maybe Wednesday evening, I would do a couple of short intervals. We're talking 400 to 1200 meters where I'm running at like my five mile pace just so my legs have that last memory of, of a quick turnover. you know not I wouldn't call it a workout. you know maybe you know walk for a mile, jog for a little bit, and then do a couple of those short repeats. But even th- I'm, I'm really not even comfortable doing that really the, the answer is rest and make sure you're getting your nutrition in especially immediate post 24-hour OCR so immediately after the event you know you want to drink something like Recoverite, so a carb and protein drink uh, that goes into your system immediately and also on top of that during the event you want to make sure you're fueling good so you don't want to end the event in this huge deficit uh, where you know you haven't really been eating a lot of nutrition during the race and then at the end of the one the race you're you know you you'll be at a negative calorie balance absolutely but you don't want to be you don't want to bonk during the 24 hour OCR because uh, again that's going to to be another hole you're going to have to dig yourself out of so drink a something like recoverite immediately after the race you know get a solid meal within an hour and then again healthy eating sleep a lot and uh, you know honestly the the biggest challenge is mentally Because you're going to feel tired and you're not going to feel like doing anything. And uh, you're going to have to psych yourself up and get ready to perform again the following weekend. So I feel like I've been kind of bouncing around. So kind of to summarize my answer, sleep a lot, eat healthy, do almost no physical activity, use Rapid Reboot, and maybe on Wednesday do a light cycle or, you know, a walking mile followed by a couple of, you know, I literally mean a couple, like two or maybe three repeats, between 400 and 1200 meters long, just to get your legs moving again. And then definitely take Thursday and Friday off, uh, so you can show up on Saturday feeling relatively okay. Gonna jump down to AC Hell's question. He said, "Pre-race beer, yes or no?" And then a winky face. I laughed at him. You know, he knows my he knows what my answer is gonna be because uh, I don't drink, so I don't. Obviously that's not a good idea pre-race beer. However, I'll say this, everyone's got different goals. So, you know, if your goal is to win the race or perform at your best, I would absolutely say no pre-race beer. If your goal is to have fun, then yeah, I mean, have a beer the night before, have one when you get up. You know, I would caution against, especially in the summer, you know, having those beers and then, you know, doing something like Conquer the Only Continuum, which I usually end up fairly dehydrated at the end anyway. So obviously alcohol is a diuretic and that will speed that. So probably not the best idea there. On the last time we had Luke Labonte, a nutritionist on the podcast, he had some good recommendations on if you should have like a glass of wine the night before or beer uh, to help with your nerves. You know, that is an option if it's absolutely necessary, but I I think you eventually want to get to the point where you don't need that. You just want to... Uh, be mentally strong enough and be physically prepared enough that you don't need uh, that outside help to calm yourself down. You know, and the, the reason I don't drink is it's it's a math equation. So the people like to tell me, oh, well, well one beer is not going to hurt you. And I say, yeah, it's true, but it's not going to help me either. You know, so why am I putting something in that is is not going to help? You know, at best case scenario, it does nothing. Uh, worst case scenario is it hurts my performance. You know, and other athletes may be, good enough where they can still drink, and perform well, and be able to recover in time. I don't think I'm one of those people, and I don't think, I think even the ones who do do that, you know, if they cut out drinking altogether, I think they would perform better across the board. But life's a balance, and you know, that extreme lifestyle of no drinking and healthy eating and consistent training may not be for everyone, so you gotta make your choices and, and do what makes you happy. But, you know, kind of understand the consequences that you're making with your decisions. All right, let's start jumping into William Shell's questions. First of all, I want to give a shout out to William Shell, Super fast runner at like short distance stuff. So we're talking 400, 800 meters. Used to be, since you're a pro runner, had a shoe sponsor. Shout out to him because we used his property for day seven of OCR America. Two, when Hell freezes over this year. And he set up a very impressive course for something that, essentially was around his uh, family's you know property and farm area there and with some pretty legit obstacles and you can watch the stoke sheds recap of that on uh, the Stoke shed page there day seven OCR America also want to give him a shout out because we went to I think it was OCR world championships back in was like 2017 or and he, he he failed a whole bunch of obstacles and uh, at the last CTG he messaged me after and was like just completed Pegatron, so he's come with such a long way and it's been great to see, you know, you stay consistent and you keep training and you add specificity, like he, you built all those obstacles at his house to help him get better. And he's continuing to improve, which has been pretty awesome to see from an outsider's perspective. Alright, let's get to his questions. First one is, any tips to train when your arms grip gets pumped out, fatigued, or how to help them recover during a race? I feel like I got the grip strength to complete virtually any obstacle, but if they come in quick succession or I end up having to do multiple attempts, my forearms get fatigued and never seem to recover, making the rest of the race basically a wash. So we'll handle the training part of this first. You know, I don't don't really... When my arms get pumped out during training, I lean into it, right? So, like, I like that feeling. I think that's good. I, I used to do bodybuilding, and that's, like, that's the... The feeling you want to get, and if you've seen Pumping Iron, you can uh, remember what Arnold Schwarzenegger compares it to. Not quite, not quite that good. But basically, once I get a pump during training, I I keep lifting weights and pushing it, so I try to keep that going as long as possible. And I think that's largely, you know, when you when you keep pushing that limit, it will it'll keep making you stronger. And then hopefully during race, you don't have to reach that point where your arms get pumped out. You know, when I go climbing and my arms start getting pumped out when I go climbing, and I'm having trouble holding on to whatever route I'm doing, I'll go down to an easier route and keep climbing with the pumped-out arms, just with bigger grips. So again, so I'm leaning into that training, trying to make my my body better. You know, I don't really have the best answer for this one because my essentially my answer sums up to you know get stronger and get better, which is easier done in concept than it is in reality. I think with a lot of people, when they're having trouble on obstacles, you know, the biggest improvement can come in the form of efficiency. You know, if you're being efficient through an obstacle, you're not even hanging on it for very long. Like I know we were at ROKC Olathe a couple weeks ago, and they were doing a dead hang contest where you know who can hang from the bar the longest. And I think Calvin Tran, one of the uh, KCOCR guys, who also trains at Apex Climbing Gym. And if you saw the video going around of him uh, leading up to Noram last year, he was the one doing Gibbons, and then he flips the peg in between each move. You know, he can hang forever. I think I think he got like seven minutes or something uh, dead hanging in the competition, so so he won. I did not participate, but I, I would be shocked if I got much over two minutes. I, I, I'd be surprised if I even got two minutes. I don't think I would... You know, maybe with the pe- pressure of people watching, I, I'd be able to go that long, but... I'd be, yeah. And the bottom line is you're never on an obstacle for that long. You know, the, the longest you should be on an obstacle is maybe, we're talking maybe 40 seconds. And that's like if you were really having trouble on a rig or you are really having trouble on Pegatron. You know, essentially you want to keep improving where you're getting through these obstacles faster and using less energy instead of increasing your grip strength to hang longer. So my answer, again, not very good, is train more, get better, and get more efficient. For in-race, I mean that's a different story. You know, once it gets pumped out during the race, you wanna give it a little bit time to recover. And at this point, it really depends on what's going on in your race, right? If you're going for a podium spot or some sort of new PR, you know, maybe maybe you rush back into the obstacle before you're 100% ready so you don't lose that podium spot. If your goal is simply not to lose your band, you know, I would stop, relax, breathe, you know rest your arms maybe even lay down for a little bit depending on the weather and how things are going and kind of let your arms return to normal and then give it give it another go also part of that is mindset you know you have to when you get to an obstacle you have to believe you're going to make it across on the first time you know every time you fell an obstacle and have to retry it there's an exponential increase in difficulty because you've you've already tried it and you're again your arms are getting tired So you want to try to get through things on first time. I know personally when I've done Conquer the Gauntlets, I usually do the best in the elite heat when my main goal is just to make it through every obstacle on the first try. Uh, You know, and I make it through everything on the first try and I focus on that. uh, The race goes smoothly. And I typically end up running faster and being more smooth and coming out with a higher placement. So yeah, let's kind of jump on to the next question. So Will asked, You've won a four mile CTG and one teams at World's Toughest Mother, uh, two complete opposite distances. Do you train? Does your very do you vary training leading up to these distances, different distances, or is your training consistent the same? What does training look like? Just a generalization of days is fine. With the start of continuum, I have switched to almost all aerobic training. I do very little intervals. So most of my training days, I just go out there and log miles. It's really nothing impressive. Uh, you don't see me post on Strava because there, there's nothing impressive there. There's nothing exciting. It's just me slogging through miles, listening to audiobooks, just getting, building that aerobic engine. And like I said, that's because Continuum and now almost you know, 80 90% of my races are now ultra endurance versus before I was kind of flip-flopping back and forth. Uh, the one benefit of doing a lot of aerobic training is essentially it builds up your aerobic base so big that you know the top end of my aerobic speed is higher than some people's anaerobic speed so i can run for a pace that other people can't sustain for as long you know back in 15 16 17 time frame i was bouncing back and forth doing a lot more short distance mixed in with ultra distance you know and in that case I would do again mostly aerobic training then maybe once or twice a week do intervals and the intervals would be you know if I was racing something short like a conquer the gauntlet I would focus more on shorter intervals so VO2 max type intervals so 400s 800s 1200s if I was planning on running something longer like a 10 mile Tough Mudder my intervals would probably be more you know lactic threshold type intervals so you know one mile one and a half maybe even two mile repeats. You know, if you read my book, Strength and Speed Guide to Elite Obstacle Course Racing, the running plans in there are pretty similar uh, to the way I used to train when I was bouncing back and forth between both of them. So an example week would be like Sunday rest day. Uh, Monday would be an interval day, let's say. So I'm doing the interval day after a rest day, so my legs are are fresh and fast. Uh, Monday evening would be a back or obstacle-focused strength training session. So where I I'm, I'm just doing obstacles or you know lifting back but with without doing running in between. So I'm 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 isolating my training for obstacles so I get really good at them and don't uh, I'm not trying to do them with a elevated heart rate or fatigued. Tuesday would be an easy aerobic run. You know my legs are going to feel tired and beat up from the day before, uh, which is good because it gets me used to running on tired legs. Tuesday evening would be another strength training session. Focus on another body part that's less important because, again, this is a, that would be my fourth workout in two days. So, probably just something to you know work on muscle imbalances. So, I'd probably do some chest exercises, maybe some abs or something. Now Wednesday would be a rest day, Thursday, easy aerobic run in the morning, Thursday evening, uh, probably something like biceps and triceps to work on supporting muscles that are going to help me complete obstacles, just kind of working on the strength portion of it. Again, I'm not. No elevated heart rate. I'm just just lifting weights, like a stereotypical bodybuilder type stuff. Friday, longer side aerobic run, and then Friday evening, if as long as I'm feeling feeling it, you know, maybe hit the gym again, do some something like shoulders or something. Again, working on muscle imbalances, making sure I'm well-rounded, because you never know what type of obstacles are going to throw at you. So I like to train the muscles uh, so they're ready for anything, right? So. Tough, Mudder did an obstacle where you had to like Superman plank and move sideways, uh, which was heavily reliant on shoulders. You know, I think if I hadn't been training shoulders, because it's not an obstacle, not something that we see as much of an obstacle course racing. Most things are, are pull movements. If I hadn't been training soldiers, I'm not sure I would have done as well on that obstacle uh, when I first, the first time I encountered it. And then Friday, so that was, I'm sorry, that was Friday. And then Saturday morning, do another long run, and then Sunday rest day. You know, so ideally I'm doing, you know, Friday, Saturday, you know, those are just example days of the week, but I'm doing two long runs back to back. So I'm getting that aerobic training and simulating what it feels like to run on tired legs uh, before repeating the week over again. You know, and if I, if I was only doing one interval training a week and still trying to do ultra and short at the same, in the same season, I would probably alternate weeks. So one week do a VO2 max workout on Monday, the next week, do a lactic threshold interval on Monday and kind of bounce back and forth. And the week of an actual short course, the of a week of any race, I would I would skip the interval training. So I'm better rested, and I would taper in. But that's, I mean, that's a whole nother topic we can get into. So we'll follow it up with, like any good athlete or student of a sport, we learn and change our training as we get more experience. In the years since you wrote Strength and Speeds Guide to Obstacle- Elite Obstacle Course Racing, is there anything you would change or add to your book about general OCR training? Can we expect a second edition? So good question, and uh, will the, this is not a setup. So since you're listening to this, I'll let everyone, all the listeners in on a little secret. So I am working on a second edition. I'm in the process of editing it right now. I'm going to publish it through, it'll be digitally available through Amazon. And if you have the first copy, um, I haven't figured out exactly how I'll do it yet, but I'll you know, there'll be a period of about 24 hours where it'll it'll be, it'll be cheaper, right? It'll be like, um, you know, five bucks or less. So if you're listening to the podcast, there'll be like a I'll let people know, and there'll be a, you know a brief window where it'll be really cheap. That way, if you already own a copy of the book, I'm not charging you full price again. You know, and then after that 24 hours, I'll raise the price to what it normally is. So probably you know $15, and it's gonna have a lot of great information in it. One. You know, when I wrote the book initially, I had something like, I don't know, 15 OCR podiums, something like that. Uh, Since then, I've gotten another 40, right? So I've gotten a little bit more experience. And, you know, this was, at the time I wrote it, I think all I had, I hadn't even done OCR America 1 yet. So since then, I've done, you know, OCR America 1 and 2, Endure the Gauntlet, OCR Mill, you know, uh, Ultra OCR Gauntlet Slam, all these ultra endurance events where I learned a lot about obstacles and training and uh, how to make your body perform well and then on top of that you know the back of the book is filled with elite athlete interviews and some of those athletes are now you know no longer in the sport or they're no longer racing at the elite level right I mean Marco Bedard uh, still races occasionally but he's mostly focused on you know the backside producing his own Northman race Uh, Claude Godbout his wife uh, just had a had a baby so she hasn't been racing recently Cassidy Watton uh, since then, has also gotten married, um, and now also has a baby. Uh, Corinna Coffin now transitioned to mostly CrossFit. Uh, Kevin Riggy also kind of transitioned to CrossFit and is, uh, you know, focused more on his business and personal life. Uh, but since you know, after I interviewed him, he actually was on the podium for Tough Mudder X uh, in third place behind Hunter and uh, Ryan Atkins on the inaugural Tough Mudder X. So, you know, it's pretty interesting to read what he said before he podiumed at that event. Uh, Hobie Call is in the back of the original book. He's not racing anymore. Uh, But obviously, I think a lot of his lessons, actually all the lessons from all the athletes still apply over. But, you know, he's not racing. And then Lindsay Webster is interviewed in the back of the original one. And she's obviously racing. But again, she was fairly new to the sport at that point. You know, probably only been racing about a year uh, consistently in the OCR world. And, you know... I'm pretty happy that I got that interview down on paper early because over the last couple of years I mean she's just continued to skyrocket and continue to be you know, I think I think you can make an argument that she's the best female OCR athlete ever. I'm sure some people would disagree, but I think you know, she she's definitely she's definitely in the running, uh, if she's not the winner there. You know, I think you can make argument for athletes like Nicole Miracle or Raya Colbel too. Amelia Boone, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of options there. I don't want to. I don't want to get into that conversation. Love uh, people angrily fighting over who's the best ever, but yeah, you know, usually when I publish a book, I try not to read it because I'll find something I don't one hundred percent agree with anymore. And you know, reading through and making edits, there was a lot of. It wasn't a lot of it wrong, but you know, as when you write something and it's your own body of work, you tend to be more critical. So there's a lot of little things that I adjusted. I modified some of the strength training plans. I thought. You know, when I wrote the book initially, I tried to have it as many options as possible so people could kind of pick and choose, uh, but kind of rereading it, I feel like that becomes overwhelming and there's too many options. So I, I reduced it to basically, it's a, it's a running plan and then there's one obstacle training a week and one, um, uh, two different strength training a week. Well, let's see what, then some of the other stuff. I recommended, you know, wearing sleeves because when you crawl through the, dirt, you know, you can scrape up your elbows, honestly that's not, that's not really a huge concern. And I found that when I was wearing sleeves during some races, the sleeves would continue to soak up water, and then as I was running the water would drip from my sleeves to my hands, keeping my hands wet. So if you notice, probably around 2017-ish, I stopped wearing sleeves, um, and I, I just race shirtless now. I made some improvements to some of the recommendations I made for balance. I wasn't very good at balance when I wrote the initial book. And I've made a, a lot of improvements. And just like anything else, it's, it's practice. You know, some balance involves using, you know, small muscles and keeping you upright on an unsteady surface. And just like anything else, you practice a lot, you'll get better at it. And then some of the stuff I recommended in there, which kind of hold over some of my uh, bodybuilding days. It's not wrong. I just personally don't do them as much anymore. Like I used to... You know, when I was bodybuilding, it's all about like getting the enough nutrition in there. So, usually when I used to get up in the middle of the night to you know go to the bathroom because if I, I would drink a lot of water, I'd keep like amino acids in the bathroom, and I'd usually drink a couple amino have a couple amino acid kind of uh, pills vitamins there, and then I'd go back to bed. And I, I just stopped. That's just something I just stopped doing. So I kind of I think I deleted that from the book. But overall, yeah, it's still it's still really relevant and the major topics are still the same for the new edition i also updated a lot of the pictures you know so a lot of the athletes pictured throughout the book you know again may not be racing anymore they're just older pictures and i I included a lot of Stokesheds' pictures which are just phenomenal and uh, refined some of my technique on some of the obstacles right so example for monkey bars now i almost always go sideways with opposing grip Um, i just found that it's faster i can take longer reaches and if the bars are wet or the bars rotate, I have a more secure grip. Whereas I think in the original version of the book, I think I recommended just going across and you know kind of normal hands facing forward. But you know, I found that sideways, taking these these big movements using using your body's swing, uh, has been faster and easier and more secure overall. Uh, those are some kind of the changes that come off off the top of my head. I know there's more in there, but I made the initial changes about back in probably March, so I don't I don't really remember all of them right now. But again, that's our secret there, so don't be telling people that because then they'll they'll stop buying my book in the hard copy in the older format. You know, with all the OCR America and all the other ultra stuff I, I've done, it's, I found efficiency is just so important for these obstacles. You know, it's the reason several days into OCR America, I'm still doing almost all the obstacles on almost all the courses. It's because when we get to a set of monkey bars, I'd be on there for a total of like seven seconds because I'm taking a couple of really big reaches, flying through it, and letting go. You know, m- my hands were tired and my muscles and back were tired, but, you know, I can suck it up and develop a short burst of energy to get across things. Now, I remember on the first OCR America at the Viking OCR in Greenville, New York, they had a Tyrolean rope traverse. It was pretty short. It wasn't one of the longer ones. And if I tried doing it a normal way, you know, hanging on the bottom or going up, up top, you know, my, I would just get exhausted because I'd be, I'd be physically hanging on the rope for a really long time. Uh, so what I started doing is I had gloves on and I would essentially grab the rope with both hands on one slide and just kind of take big sideways movements like I'm moving across, you know, a pole or the top of a swing set. And because I could get across the Tyrolean Traverse in, you know, a couple of moves, I was able to continuously complete the obstacle. Uh, versus if I tried going the normal way, I probably would have fallen. Yeah, so it's a lot of kind of nitpicky type stuff where, you know, the advice I gave the first time is still good, uh, but the advice I'm giving in the newer edition is better. So Will also asks, when you do multi-lap races, what do you think the ideal distance is for a lap and why? And excluding 24-hour races, what is the ideal time frame for a multi-lap race and why? So I'll start off with ideal distance for a multi-lap race so the longest multi-lap races I've done are Australia's True Grit which was about 10k, so around 6.2 miles Uh, Dirt Runner's Midwest Mayhem was about 6.2 miles and Shale Hill was 5 and then Tough Mudder is usually 5. If you went to one of the original World's Toughest, the first I think two in New Jersey they were around 10 mile laps and then obviously Conquer the Gauntlet Continuum and BFX is closer to four miles per lap. I tend to like five. I think that is largely a product of that's what most of the races use so that's kind of what I've gotten used to. You know if they change the length of the laps I would just adjust my plan accordingly. Five miles is pretty good because it allows me to run without carrying you know a water carrier or my food on the course. Typically the only thing I have is a spy belt with a couple of gels you know even at true grit in australia and for shell hell um, which the laps are only 5 miles but there's it's so obstacle dense and the obstacles take so long you actually sp- you spend a lot longer on the course per lap than you would at something like a tough mudder or toughest mudder rather you know dirt runners midwest mayhem same thing with 6 point around 6.2 mile laps you know, for all, for me for all of those i was moving fast enough where I did not need to carry extra fuel and water on the course and you know most of them had a water stop at least one located at some point uh, during each lap you know once you start getting above around the seven mile range then you know depending on the amount of water stations and the temperature eh, it starts getting a little bit iffy if you need to start carrying your food and water again for me personally Uh, depending on your pace you may you know for a five mile Tufts mutter, you may have to carry your own food and water on each lap. It is a tipping point though because if you're you're carrying your food and water that's more weight you're carrying and more energy you're expending to move forward which means the slower you're going to be moving which means the longer you're going to be on the course per lap so when possible I try not to carry food and water uh, with me Um, the first two world's toughest I did I did end up I did have a water carrier just because I hadn't figured out the nutrition and the timing yet so I'm going to go with five miles just because mostly because that's what I'm used to um I think if you once you get to the ten mile range and up uh then those laps get long and you're uh, you know that to me that's that's too long uh for a multi lap race when they start get to four miles and below, then they start getting too short and for for too short for me i mean it's it's a mental thing you know i know it doesn't it doesn't make much sense to people but when you're like, oh, I only have you know three more laps left. It's easier to handle when the laps are well, let me let me rephrase that. If I have to run 15 miles left and I know that's about how many miles I'll, I'll be able to do before I before the event ends. it's easier for me to think I have to run three laps than it is that I have to run five laps, you know if it was a three mile lap. and I know that <laughs> I know it's the same distance. But mentally, three is a lower number. So for some reason it fools my mind into thinking that it's it's less work and it's not as big of a deal. So yeah, I, I like five mile laps. And as far as ideal time frame for a multi lap race and why, it really depends on the athlete. Now if we're gonna talk me personally, I think for me, twelve hour races is where I shine because I I feel like I can I can run at a decent pace for twelve hours. Um, once we get Closer to eight hours, uh, I have to push harder, and I don't think I'm as as good at uh, eight hours as I am at twelve hour. Well, once we get to twenty four, I typically I typically start falling apart towards the end of the race. There, uh, so that's I mean obviously I do well in them, but that's I feel like my performance comparatively is is best at the twelve hour. You know, for other people signing up, you know, again it, it's going to vary per person. I tend to think the six hour is a pretty good time frame where it, it's a long time, but it's not so daunting that it's going to scare everyone off, right? Like, I know very, I feel I, I'm always surprised at how many people show up to toughest mutter because whether it was eight or 12 hours, that just seems like a really long time for people. And uh, I'm always surprised, like I said, with the number of people that show up. So it doesn't seem to scare them away, but I feel like for a lot of people, that would scare them away. Uh, from the competitive side, the longer the race is, the more recovery you're going to need, right? So if you're running for 12, I mean, I, when I do a 12-hour Toughest mutter, I'm just destroyed for for weeks after, you know. And I'll still sometimes come out and race, but I do not feel like I'm running at my actual potential. Yeah, sometimes that's still good enough to do well or place in other races, but I don't feel good when I'm trying to push that soon after a, something like a Toughest mutter. You know, when it gets the twenty-four hour race, you know that that's really disruptive and it really throws a wrench in people's seasons. So, I think if you are if you are organizing a race and you want people to sign up, you know, when you throw a twenty-four hour race in the schedule, I think it's just too big of a thing for people to do unless it's like the last race of the season, like how World's Toughest Mudder is or Spartan's twenty-four hour race, where it's like right at the end. So people typically do that and they go into an off season because after a twenty-four hour race, my desire to train drops really low which is what made when I did the six 24-hour OCRs in a a year back in 2017 that's what made that so challenging is because I would run a 24-hour race and then I'd be like cool next 24-hour race is in like two weeks and it was just like mentally is mentally very rough you know and unlike OCR America or OCR America 2 where I'm competing against myself with the 24-hour races I was competing against other people so I was racing against people who had not raced the 24-hour race two weeks earlier, so it was uh, it was just hard um, knowing that I was purposely putting myself in a disadvantage going into a race. So yeah, I'm gonna go with six hours is my answer, Will. All right, I'm gonna answer two more of Will's questions, and then he's got I mean he's just got so many, and actually a lot of them are really good. So we'll answer two more, uh, then we'll cut this episode off, and we'll pick up. Uh, I'll record some of the other answers and save it as a different episode, and then release it later. So one of the questions he asked was, being a part of the OCR community for many years, what do you think is one thing we should work on as a whole to be better community? All right, I'm going to come back to this one because I don't really have a good answer at this point. Uh, a lot of things are coming through my mind. I'm going to go for a run tomorrow, think about it, and then we'll, we'll answer this one later. Next question was, you've written articles on how to make oneself more appealing, marketable to sponsors, but as someone who has created their own business and brand, Strength and Speed, what's some advice resources for others who want to start their own Brand business, whether it's team race, small business, or service to, for hire, etc. If you can relate bias, your answer to the OCR industry, I'd appreciate it. So if you've read my autobiography, I talk about this a little bit. Uh, so the first thing to know is when you start your own brand, you're going to lose money probably for at least two years. Uh, you, you put an initial investment in and it, it, it takes, for, for most, not everyone, right? it takes a little bit to, to recover that initial investment. I'd say the second thing is, you know, I was expecting a bunch of my friends to buy some merchandise and stuff like that. And you know, they don't, most of them do not. It's kind of like when your friends start a band and they start trying to sell CDs and you know, people aren't buying their CDs even though you know them, you know, instead they're going and they're spending money on something else, you know, so don't get discouraged when initially um, you don't see that initial return. So I would not rely on friends initially to uh, support your brand. The other thing I'd say is a lot of it's trial and error. I mean, I've tried doing a whole bunch of different things to promote strength and speed. Some of them work. Some of them don't. Uh, Some of the ones, like, you know, some of the articles I write that I think are just so good just get no traction and no one seems to care. And other ones I write that are completely, in my mind, completely stupid. You know, it's about, like, Peeing your pants and in your wetsuit, and you know, taking mud out of your butt, have just gotten a lot of great traction. Actually, the thing that's gotten the the post I have that has the most traction was some meme I stole from another way. I can't even know where I got it from. I saw it on my Facebook, saved it to my phone, reposted it like two months later, and it got some absurd number of shares. Yeah, I paused the recording to bring up the post, so I'm gonna read it to you. This is this is a meme that I again I don't know where I got it from. It says fitness tip. Never stop pushing yourself. Some say eight hours of sleep is enough. Why stop there? Why not nine? Why not ten? Strive for greatness. Do 15 push-ups instead of ten. Run three miles instead of two. Eat the whole cake instead of a slice. Burn your ex's house down. I believe in you. And then it says, this is sending so many mixed messages. That post by itself got 7.2 thousand reactions and 3.8 thousand comments. I can't see how many shares I got on the, uh, the version I pulled up on my, on my phone there. But it, it was a lot. Like it took my the number of likes I had in strength and speed and I think doubled it. We went from like 5,000 to 10,000. And honestly, I don't even think it's that funny. But people seem to eat it up. You know, and that's literally the – according to the internet, that's the best thing I've ever posted. You know, it's not my book. It's not my fundraising charity events. It's not all pushing my body to the limits. It's It's that meme. You know, so a lot of the stuff I've been doing on Strength and Speed is trial and error. You know, the one lucky thing is, you know, I have a day job, so I'm not 100% reliant on it, which can be a blessing and a curse. You know, it's a blessing because I don't, you know, if things fail, it's okay. It's not the end of my career. At the same time, it's a curse because you have an easy out, right? Like if if things get too hard, you can just give up and it it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to do this uh, to make a living or to get get perks you know so whatever business you're doing I would find something you enjoy and that you're willing to do even if not many people care you know because if you're solely doing it because you want to make money one you may not ever make money and two it's gonna be a lot more stressful um, than any other job you know like if your only goal was to make money you'd be better off going and getting and working at McDonald's because the amount of time and energy and investment you're gonna put into uh, whatever business or brand you're trying to start, you're gonna spend a lot more you're gonna make less mo- significantly less money than you would in uh, you know dollars per hour if you just went and got a minimum wage job and you know flip burgers and cooked fries for a living. You know some of the other challenges is you you know I get my ideas from looking around at other sports and other brands, You know, so you see another brand doing something, right? Like, let's say, oh, they're selling T-shirts. So just because that brand is selling T-shirts doesn't mean the T-shirts you make are going to sell. Even if your T-shirts are better than the other brand's T-shirts. So just because you see someone else doing something and they give the appearance of success, don't always assume that's what's actually going on behind the scene. They might be losing money, but, you know, but how often do you see people post on social media, hey, here's my business I started... And I've lost all the money I've invested, and I'm you know that's it. I'm I'm going on to something else. You know, usually they make a big deal when they open the business, and then whatever they're working on, if it, if it fails, they just kind of it just fades quietly into the darkness. There, you know, I found for me personally when I was doing stuff because I enjoyed it, and uh, I was just trying to help people. The the perks started rolling in. You know, so I've helped brands not expecting anything in return, and You know, you write some articles for them and you do things for them and then, you know, they start hooking you up with stuff and getting you entry into races and start giving you product. You know, so for me personally, I found that um, doing stuff for free, uh, not expecting anything in return, and then uh, the rewards started coming later. So I basically, you know, I had to invest my time and resources and effort initially before I actually started getting compensated for stuff. You know, most of the articles I write online, I don't I don't get paid directly for, like someone doesn't send me a check per article. Not you know, most of the articles I've written were 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 for free. However, that's opened up other opportunities where you know, I have worked for some brands where they paid me per article. You know, I also say if you're looking for ambassadors for your brand or people to help promote your brand, you know, let those people come to you versus you seeking them out. You know, when I, when I try to give someone some free product or something for free um, that didn't nec- that where like I approached them first, they typically don't do as good of a job as if someone who, who approaches me and was like, hey, I'd like to represent, you know, your brand. The people who approach you, you know, want it more and are more appreciative, uh, as shown by them willing to go out of their way to ask you for something. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of it's trial and error, you know, it's, you could say some of it's luck. Uh, I don't typically believe in luck. You know, I think the appearance of luck is that someone who has been working hard and has put themselves in the right place enough times, where at some point, you know, things just happen to line up, via yeah, God's providence or whatever, and things happen to work out. You know, with all the books I've written and the articles I've written, I do it because I enjoy it, and I'm I'm relatively good at it. And I occasionally get some pretty good perks out of it. But again, it it requires a lot of time. Like, every time... Actually, it it doesn't take me that long to write a lot of the stuff. The editing and the adjusting and the adding of pictures and captions and formatting, to me that's the worst part. I just... I hate it, right? Like, um, I'm on a business trip right now and basically every night for a couple hours I've been going in and adjusting font sizes and spacing and moving pictures around and then has like a ripple effect where I gotta fix everything now. So, all, all my books are now not well, except for Strength and Speed's Guide to Elite of Course Racing, like which I said I'm still working on. But all my other books are available in digital on Amazon, and they're also available on hard copy on Amazon. So, I prefer if you buy it off me, because I typically get a better return on those. But, you know, if you wanna buy it off Amazon, that's fine too. For most of the ones on Amazon, I updated the cover and maybe some of the inside pictures. Uh, but the majority of the content is still the same. So, if you like if you like different pictures, then maybe get the one off Amazon. Or if you want me to sign your book, then you got to buy it off my website because I don't sign the ones off Amazon. You know. And the other thing is, just cause you're, you know, like I mentioned earlier, just cause your product is better doesn't mean you're going to make more money or it's going to sell better, or you have access to the right market. Example, at least in my mind, you know, I think Conquer the Gauntlet has the best obstacles around, right? I, I I love their obstacles. I think they're great. I think they're inventive. You know, when you compare that to Spartan, I I, mean, I I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Spartan obstacles. I don't think they're good. And when you put them side by side, it's like, well, how can people not be flocking to Conquer the Gauntlet over Spartan? The answer is a complex answer, but it involves a couple of things. You know, one is market. The Spartan has their races in bigger cities with more people. It's I mean it's just a sheer numbers game there. Two, it's marketing, right? They 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 push hard on their marketing and they've built this lifestyle brand around uh, Spartan and that whole that whole ethos there that that just sells really well and appeals to people's, you know, inner desires there. And three, another big one is their initial investment, right? Joe DeSena has very deep pockets, a lot deeper than I had ever expected, as shown by him buying Tough Mudder and all their debt, um, you know, at the beginning of this year. Yeah, I don't know how qualified I am to give this answer, but you know, Strength and Speed, um, yeah, has made some money, so we we're doing okay, and we've obviously continue to produce books and podcasts and stuff like that. So it's still worth my time and energy, but you know, at the same time, I do it. Uh, because I, I enjoy doing it, and when I stop enjoying it, I will, you know, I'll shut down the Strength and Speed podcast, and maybe turn it over to someone else to host. You know, and move on to something else with my life. When I was initially starting, and I did listen to a couple of business-related books. To me, none of them. Uh, I, I wasn't really crazy about any of them. I feel like they were just most of the books I listened to. I did audiobooks for most of them. I feel like they were just preying upon people uh looking for help. And like I said for me personally, I had a background where I participated in a lot of other different sports and when I found OCR, I started looking around I was like, well, what does other sports have that OCR doesn't? You know, the first thing I identified was there's no book that talks about the competitive side of obstacle course racing, right? There's everything every book is the intro's got the, you know, the beginner's guide to mud runs and stuff like that and I was like Someone should write a book on competitive obstacle course racing. I was like, Well, I've got enough knowledge and a personal trainer certification and you know, I'm doing pretty well at this stuff, so I think I I think I'm qualified to or better qualified than anyone else. And I was actually I've been shocked that, you know, it's now twenty twenty and I'm still not tracking any other competitive obstacle course racing books. Uh, you know, maybe one slipped in and under the radar that I wasn't tracking, but you know, I I haven't seen one. And some of the other things I'll say is there's sometimes unseen benefits, right? So, you know, just because one of my books doesn't necessarily sell as well as one of the other ones doesn't mean I haven't uh, received perks uh, for highlighting a brand or, or you know, giving back to the community. Now, honestly, I feel like I've, I've gotten so much out of the OCR community and the brands and the sport than I ever really imagined uh, would ever happen in my lifetime. So I, I really consider all the perks and benefits I've received a complete blessing you know just like in fitness I think the appearance of success is often those that just didn't give up you know how much money you pour into something uh, versus how much money you get out of it and what you're expecting in return That's gonna vary per person on you know what you're comfortable with one of the unseen benefits that I wasn't expecting about you know starting strength and speed is I started figuring out what when I was looking for sponsors, you know, kind of what they could see and what they liked. You know, just a quick example, you know, if someone hashtag strength and speed, I, I don't see that unless I go searching for that hashtag versus when someone tags, you know, at strength and speed, team strength speed, you know, then it appears on my Facebook feed and lets me know that someone, someone tagged me and I can find it to reshare, you know, so that allowed me to better use social media when I was, you know, getting sponsors or, promoting sponsors so I, I could understand what they could see and what they uh, couldn't see or would have a little more trouble seeing you know also really simple stuff like I know we're straying into a little bit of a more about personal sponsorship and less about you know running a brand but you know when a brand uses my image or you know publishes one of my articles I share it right I share it more than I share my own stuff that's published on strength and speed because I'm trying to uh, give back to them and thank them for, you know, using one of my articles or you know, using my image for something. And I'm always shocked with how often, you know, examples, right? Like I'll put a guest on Strength and Speed. You know, I obviously share it to my personal page. I'll share it to Strength and Speed Instagram. I'll share it to my, usually my personal Instagram. Um, I'm always surprised at the number of guests who don't even – they're on a podcast, they spend an hour talking to me, and then they don't even share it to their own page. Um not mad about it it's just i just i just find it very odd you know for those of you who are looking for sponsorships you know just simple things like that um you know people are people are appreciative of that even if even if not a lot of people listen or not a lot of people click on the link or read the article whatever you know the fact that you've taken the extra two seconds it takes to push share um uh, brands appreciate you know other than that i would encourage you to go back and listening to some of the um, David, when David Main Prize was on the episode, uh, and he, so I listened to the, when I had him on the podcast, and then also he was on Link Endurance. I don't know, it was like a year or two ago. He talks a lot about the backside industry of the brand, and i would, uh, or running a race. I'd also listen to the Christopher Accord one, and there's just a lot more that goes into races and you know running a business than than most people typically think of. You know, and I know when David was on. I uh, can't remember if it was my podcast or Lincoln Derrick. She talked about the cost of marketing and just how, you know, if you really want to get something to take it off, how how high that cost is. Which, you know, relating it back to the pop culture world, you look at someone like the Kardashians, who I'm still not 100% sure why they're famous, uh, but they have this enormous marketing uh, behind them, right? They just They just push forward on marketing on all fronts. And I personally don't enjoy anything they put out, uh, but they seem to have convinced people that they should listen to them and follow them and watch their TV show. And a lot of that has to do with how hard their, their marketing pushes. You know, with a lot of my books, you know, I push marketing, but I, I usually don't do things that cost money. I try to you know, write articles for people and, and market it that way or produce a podcast and market my books that way. You know, My books don't sell as well because I don't, I don't pour money into marketing. You know, so I read my book, um, Ultra OCR Man, right? It's focused on, it's got a lot of military stories in there. It's got a lot of endurance stories on there. You know, and I've read biographies of probably more than a dozen other endurance athletes. And obviously I'm a little biased because it's my book. But, you know, I legitimately think my book has better stories and better information in there than a lot of these other books uh, that are, you know, if we actually looked at the numbers, I'm sure they're blowing me out of the water on sales. You know, but at the end of the day, not doesn't bother me too much, right? I mean, that's I wrote it because one, I enjoy it. It's it's a nice keepsake for my family and my kids to have. You know, it raises a little bit of money for charity, and you know, I would like obviously, I would like it if it's sold better. So I, then I could I could give more money uh, for folds of honor. So that's what the hard copy sales go to, and I think also it would be it would be nice if it sold more because then you know hopefully that would encourage other people to write their own OCR books. And I mentioned that in the back of my book, right? Like I would love to read books by, you know, Ryan Atkins and Hobie Call and, you know, get a little bit deeper into their mindset and learn a little bit more about their background in a, you know, a written or audiobook format. You know, I really hope some of those other athletes um are gonna go that route. guess uh, I just think there's a lack of OCR content that is long term, right? Like we have you know, we have a ton of articles, we have tons of podcasts. Uh, we have very stu- few stuff that with staying power, you know. And now, in in that regards, I'm talking books and I'm talking uh, documentaries. Uh, again, which is why I leaned into those subjects, right? So I, I got the I got the books, and then, you know, with Stokeshed, we've got the documentary coming out whenever some of this quarantine dies down, and uh, we we have some time to film some final scenes. So I feel like I've strayed wildly off topic and talked for too long. So Evan's advice from his you know, moderately successful business here is uh, do something that you enjoy and that you love and would, would do even if you never never got a positive return on. And if it starts looking like things are panning out, you know, then maybe you can you can go all in and quit your day job and go do something else and you know focus on your private business. You know, and if you're looking to start your own OCR team, uh, the best example I can give is the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team. I'm not going to go into all the details now. Maybe we can go to that some other episode. But uh, just take a look at how we've organized, what our jerseys look like, what our Facebook and our website and our Instagram looks like, and I think that can give you an idea um, for other people to do similar things. Honestly, it took me several years. I, I couldn't believe that no one copied our, our business model for uh, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team. And then someone pointed out to me, they're like, yeah, uh, Evan, you do a lot of work behind the scenes that uh, no one ever sees, so uh, that's probably why no one else has copied it, because it's, lo- it's a lot of work. And I was like, oh yeah, that, I guess that makes sense. Uh, but again, I, I'm doing most of that because I enjoy it, and I think it I think it helps other people, and I think it moves the sport forward in a positive direction. I've actually got an article that I wrote about two years ago that I, I, I haven't published, um, it's a concept for a, a OCR Pro League. Um, it was essentially the way I set up the league. Uh, essentially, no cost. It's very. It's like almost no cost to people, and it's like all benefits. Um, it's um. You know, maybe I'll I'll dig that out of the uh, out of the files and dust it off and update it slightly and publish it. We'll see. Uh, but it's a way to get brands invested into the sport and allows race company to have representatives of their brand at other races uh, with minimal uh, cost to them or effort. You know, the trick would be for that, my pro league concept would be set, finding people similar to me who are motivated to do a bunch of work uh, without, you know, necessarily an immediate tangible return. All right, that's it. I I think I've run my mouth long enough. Now, hopefully that was helpful. Google's telling me, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, about 20% of U.S. small businesses fail within the first year. By the end of their fifth year, roughly 50% have failed. So the odds are not looking particularly good. However, I feel like this lesson applies to life in general. You know, if you stick with something and you're persistent and you enjoy it and you care about it and you keep working towards it, I think you can overcome a lot of those hurdles and problems. Obviously, the more money you have, the more flexibility you have and the more you can make bad decisions and recover from them versus if you're running on a very tight budget that's, you know, that limits your flexibility and you know increases your risk if things go downhill. All right, that's it for now. We'll finish up the rest of the Q&As at another time. Enjoy the episode. Go over to Amazon, check out some of the new covers I provided for some of my new books. And since we're talking about small businesses, you know, make sure you're sharing – the brands and stuff you enjoy. So you can share my podcast if you want. That's great. Um, but you vote vote by sharing and where you spend your money. You know, so if you want more OCR books, buy OCR books. If you want more Conquer the Gauntlet races, go to more Conquer the Gauntlet races. If you want more Spartan races, go to more Spartan races. If you want more Savage races, share their posts. Uh, that article I wrote on Muddering Guide where we talked about Brett Stewart, about you know what we can do... Uh, To help brands during this time, you know, is very applicable and continues to be applicable. uh, Because the brands we know and love are going to have trouble uh, recovering from quarantine. And again, like we talked about with Brett Stewart, I don't think the sport's going anywhere. Uh, The face of the sport may change drastically in the next couple years. And the brands we support, you know, it's a large we, uh, will be the ones that survive and continue to put on races. Uh, So vote with your money and share and promote the brands you like and that'll send a signal to them to keep doing what they're doing or Improve what they're doing uh, to match the desire of the people uh, signing up All right, We'll catch you later